You are listening to Invisible Not Broken, a chronic illness podcast that doesn't hold back. Our interviews are raw and honest, educational and inspirational, and we like to dish out some laughs because life with chronic illness demands it sometimes. I'm Eva Minkoff, your co-host, fibromyalgia warrior and founder of Wellacopia, the patient practitioner matching site. We are on a mission to humanize healthcare through healthcare relationships. And the best way to support this mission is to sign up on wellacopia.com today. So our guest for this episode is a chronic warrior in his own right, but definitely an interviewee outside of the norm for us. Today, I'm chatting with Bernardo Puccio, the interior designer to the stars, literally to the stars. In this episode, Bernardo talks about his life and career as the most famous interior designer in Hollywood and being friends with celebrities like Elizabeth Taylor and Lana Turner, all while battling liver failure and likely mortality. In this episode, Bernardo takes us on his journey of celebrating life and preparing for death in the face of illness, braving trauma through writing, and the significant roles of loved ones. From his modest Italian upbringing in the South, he came to LA and became the most sought after interior designer in Hollywood, only to find himself in need of a liver transplant. His book titled, 13 Pieces of Unmatched Luggage and My Poodle, is a tale of glamor, survival, and the challenges of embracing life and love while at death's door. Isn't that an amazing title? I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, especially because it wasn't even meant to be a podcast recording. This was our first introduction to each other and it just took off. For this reason though, you'll likely notice that this episode jumps around a little bit because of edits here and there, but I'm sure you'll enjoy regardless. He's just so damn blunt yet charming and I love it. Before starting, I want to give a quick shout out to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review Invisible Not Broken. We have 101 reviews, and the more opinions we have, the better. In fact, now that I've been the co-host with Monica for a while, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on my interviews. What did you like? What did you not like? Who or what would you like me to cover? I'm all ears and Feedback is welcomed. Lastly, and as always, I want to give a reminder that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Okay, enough from me. Let's jump headfirst into the world of Bernardo Puccio. We have to do what we have to do. Life is so, he throws things for you, you don't expect sometimes. And I learned the hard way through my liver transplant. And you just deal with what you have to deal with. And Mm -hmm. I I go out and I speak to people and I try to explain to them, especially younger people who have never been through any crisis like that. You just deal with what you have to deal with and continue on. And life is so great and just accept it. And be strong enough to handle it. And it's it, life throws things at you you never expect. Someone recently posted, I think, on Facebook about uh, being angry that people call them brave. And I thought that was interesting. I said, okay, why, why are you upset about that? Right. And she said, I didn't ask for this. 
So it's not something I went off and conquered because I was like, I'm going to conquer this thing. It was, it was bestowed upon me. And yes, I was, I worked hard to deal with it given that I had it, but it wasn't that I chose it. And she saw bravery as something you choose to pursue that's difficult. So it was like, I don't know if it was a pessim pessimistic way to look at it, but it was more that. Everyone says it differently. Yeah. Uh, Good luck with your illness. And you know, you're strong enough, hopefully, to deal with it. Yeah. Stronger. And I have a partner who's fabulous, right? He that means more than anything in the world. I could never have gotten it through with that, with, with that Orin. He was my life partner for 43 years and we've been married 11. And I just could not have gotten through that major crisis without him. I say it in the book intensely. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, did you read the book? I read the back of the book first. And um, I do that. So I'll tell you something um, about me and, and what I do. So I have a platform called Wellacopia, and it's a, a matching platform for doctors and patients, the same way you would match a dating site in a, in a dating site. It's for people with chronic illnesses and the doctors they're gonna see long-term, right? Like you need to have a good relationship with them, trust them, especially if we're talking an invisible illness and you need to, well, maybe you need to be diagnosed. <laughs> you need to um, try different things, investigate and so on. So when you, when I read the back of the book <laughs> and you're like talking about yelling at the doctor because they, uh, they, you, you, yeah. I was like, well, he understands the, the problem. I mean, anyone who's been a patient uh, long-term, especially understands the difficulty uh, in finding the right doctor and connecting with a doctor, so. I was so fortunate that I really had an incredible team that I worked, they took care of me rather, at Cedars. And um, I still see them often and they're just amazed at how I have accomplished what I have and how I keep going and the stamina that I have and 10 years in March. And so that's been an amazing achievement to me, more than anything I've achieved in life. To achieve that is the greatest for me. And uh, to overcome the liver transplant and that it was a success and to go on and live a normal life is incredible. Very yeah. few people go on that length of time. It's very, very true. I'll tell you the turning point of my entire life was when I realized how sick I was and had been told by several doctors and I was in complete denial. I did not want to accept the fact that I had cirrhosis of the liver and I was going to die. So I thought that I could fight it and when, which you cannot, you cannot fight something like that. It's like having cancer. You can, you know, eventually it can go away or it can disappear, but cirrhosis doesn't go away. And so um, I thought I had lived an incredible life. I had a great partner. We'd been all over the world. We'd done everything in the world I thought I wanted to do at that time. So I said, I'm not going to have this transplant. And all the doctors said, you won't live unless you have the transplant. And so I woke up one morning and I was 35 pounds heavier. I was yellow as a banana. I was very distorted. I was completely full of poison. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought I was going to scream because I was, was no longer me. And I said to him, I said to Oren, I want to go to my 
gastroenterologist. And so we got dressed and went to him. And he, when I walked in, he said, what are you here for, Bernardo? I said, Dr. Wolf, you know, you've been telling me about this transplant for so long now. I've decided I want to have it. And he looked at me and said, are you really telling me you want to have it now? I said, yes. I said, I cannot watch Orin watching me die. And I said, feeling this way and looking this way, I want to go, let's go. And that was the turning point of my life right there. And that was the beginning of everything that I had to go through because I didn't truly think that I would be strong enough to survive such a tremendous ordeal of the after the transplant. Mm -hmm. That is horrendous. But I did, and I learned that I can do anything I want to do, that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Seems like you felt that way about your career before. Everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes I amaze myself because as you read in the book, I came from a, a wonderful Italian family, a very simple Italian family who had a grocery business. And my mother was an incredible smart woman and she ran that business and I fathered with her. But um, I learned the work ethics and I always liked the fact that if you work hard, you will always be comfortable with money. And that was so important to me. And I learned that from my family very early in life. So when I went out on my own and I really realized finally that it was a design business that I wanted to be in, interior designer, the greatest asset I had was my working in my father's grocery store and business college education, because that gave me a background for business. So when I became this incredible interior designer and was so successful, I knew how to handle the money and to deal with the money and the investments and, and not let the money fly away. Like so many of my friends, they lost everything. Uh, they couldn't deal with the success and, and the overabundance of money. So it was great for me that I had that business background. It gave me great bones. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's always interesting to see how entrepreneurs flourish uh, based on their background, whether they had any of that spirit in them or not. Like I, uh, I've been an entrepreneur. Um, that's what I always wanted to be, even when I didn't know I wanted to be that. And both my parents are in corporate America. Really? Yeah. They, uh, yeah. They, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so proud of my parents. They've become very successful and uh, they're really proud of you. They are, they are proud. It's hard for them sometimes because they like stability, right? And here they I- They would like for you to have more flourishing and more- yeah. It's yeah. early, but uh, like it took, I've been doing this business for three years and it's only now starting to hit the up and up. Um, it and takes time. Yeah, it does. And I went in really naive, which is good. I wouldn't have done it if I wasn't naive. You know what? Sometimes naive is good. I was naive when I was growing up in, left Birmingham, Alabama, I was very naive, but I learned a lot being naive. Yeah. I'm not naive anymore, I can tell you that. <laughs> it took me almost five years to finish my book because I kept going back and, re, and reliving it and revisiting it and, and changing things. And five years and to get it from one place to the end. And um, there were t times in my book that it was very, very di di difficult for me to um, write 
because I had to, I blocked out so much, especially about the liver transplant and so much about my past that I had as growing up as a child. And so to go back and write all that was like having to really relive it all again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, well, I mean, it depends on who you are and how you deal with these things, but it's very therapeutic, but it's also a little PTSD, right? You're bringing right. Back, uh, really hard memories. Uh, I like to write, particularly when I'm upset. Uh, it just is that way, right? It's how I like to write, period. Yeah. I write notes, I write letters, I write people's comments and things. You know, I, just, I write everything down. Uh, yeah. And that's how I have a schedule. Every day is a list. And the next day gets what I didn't do on that day. I put it on the top of the next day. So I, my life is a writing list. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. I have a little uh, whiteboard over there. I, I tend to like the whiteboard. Yeah. Oh, well, you don't forget anything. Yeah, it's in my face. Like, you still have to do this. <laughs> Clients say to me, how did you not forget, forget anything? Well, I have a list and I go by it and I try to make my notes and I try to be organized, you know, um, it's been a very important asset in my business, particularly being the owner of my corporation. I don't like giving everybody orders to do everything because if there's a mistake, then I have to blame them. So this way, if I oversee everything, then if there's a mistake, I blame myself and I redo it. But I try to organize my life and especially in a design business, if everything is not methodical and just precisely done, you can make very costly mistakes. Yeah, it's true. Without, and, and you know this, leaving room also for creativity and like what is right. what needs to be solved here. I always leave room for a little bit of change, you know, something can come up and you can see something and you'll say, oh, this works even better than what I had planned. So leave room for change. Yeah, recently I started this practice of leaving the mornings for creative work, whatever that means. It's like something that takes a lot more uh, brain power and maybe with an outline, but just something that has to come from almost nowhere. What sign are you? I'm a Taurus, but Aries. I'm the opposite from you. I have my evening creations. Everything can be in the evening. A lot of people do. I think because of my fibro, I have fibro fog. It hits 8 p.m. and I'm like, I, if I'm going to work, it has to be mindless work. <laughs> Pretty. And mine is at night when I really, everything is quiet and the phones aren't ringing and just silence. My creativity comes alive and I then start writing everything down because I don't want to forget it. And so that's how I do most of my work. Yeah. Yeah, the whole night owl, morning person, whatever, bird. What's it called? <laughs> thing. It really is fascinating how people uh, just thrive at certain hours. Everybody's different. Yeah, everyone really is different. Everyone has known. So I'm a morning and a night person, just in general, and maybe not working, but I love being up late, but I love getting up early in the morning, which equals no sleep for Eva. But <laughs> yeah, you have sleep. I have to have my sleep, but I'm up to two in the morning, so I try to sleep to about 10. And so I get my, I've got to have the rest. Yeah. My body has to. My body does too. And I let it ha have eight hours in bed, but late, especially lately, I've, um, I've picked up insomnia, not full insomnia, but like taking one to two hours to fall asleep insomnia. And my partner is terrible. He can't sleep and yeah. drugs don't work. And 
he just can't cut his head off, brain, you know, his mind off. And uh, yeah, he, that's exactly what mine is. It just races, even if it's not about work. Just going. going. Yeah, he can't sleep. It's terrible. I feel sorry for him. I um I still need to. I want to re-listen to it, but I I heard a podcast a week ago where someone, Tim Ferriss, interviewed some guy who's like an expert on. Uh, actually, I don't know what he's known for. I just know that he's done a lot of research in hypnosis, but not hypnosis the way we think of it, but hypnosis for sleep and insomnia and how you can hip hypnotize yourself a little bit. Dissimilar to meditation, it's not quieting your brain, but it's actually focusing on one thing intensely so that your brain's not thinking about anything else. And I want to work on that. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, you have to have rest. Your body especially you with your problem yeah. that you need rest. Mm -hmm. it's I have true. a lot of friends, lady friends who have that and they've had it for years. It's, it's pretty awful. For some, it's really awful. Ooh. Do you inherit that or anything? No. So, I mean, I don't know when fibromyalgia became diagnosable, but barely, people weren't really diagnosed with it until the last 10 to 15 years, much at all. Well, I've never heard of it. Yeah, so um, my my mother, grandmother that I'm named after, she died right before I was born. She was in a pain a lot of the time, various things. Maybe uh, they didn't know what it was. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And then my great grandmother had a lot of joint pain. So I have a feeling Probably. there was something there. Also, I know my great grandmother had, and look, I've accepted this about my body, but she had fat knees and I have fat knees. <laughs> And I think it's my body's way of saying, I'm going to protect you. <laughs> Just wear a dress to cover your knees. Yeah, I'm, I'm so used to it now that... I see these women wearing these short, short dresses with these terrible legs. <laughs> Just cover them up, that's all. Yeah, I show, I've got a great waist, my boobs, my ass. You look beautiful. Just <laughs> you look great. God, thank you. you. Don't worry about your knees. No, I know. Everyone, everyone has something. Everyone, everyone has something. I don't care who they are. Everyone has something they don't like about themselves. Yeah, and I, I kind of make fun of them now. It's like, oh, and my little fat knees. <laughs> well, I haven't worn shorts in years. <laughs> I never really enjoyed wearing shorts. They're very uncomfortable. I have grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, and and I told you I'm British, right? So uh, I'm a British Jew, which is rare. And British Jews, oh my, talk about family. Very yeah. They're very strict and religious and um, very smart. Yeah. Loving, though. I have such a loving family. It's very Italian, honestly. Italian oh, families. Jews and Italians are so close. I mean, honest to God, when it comes to family, especially. Yeah. And the Jewish mothers adore their sons. They adore yeah. their children, period. Yeah. You have a brother? No, a sister, so we didn't have that going oh, okay, on. Well. They adore my husband. <laughs> well, I'm sure they do. Yeah, oh, they love him. The Jewish pediatrician. I was going to say the doctor. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, every Jewish family has to have a doctor in the family. Yeah, and we have no doctors anywhere in our family, so my mom loves My mother must be ecstatic. <laughs> she had this joke that it's every, every Jewish mother's wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. Okay. <laughs> she's funny. Yeah, but he's... Uh, How long have you been married? 
Uh, one slash two years. We got married at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. That oh, was wonderful. Wonderful. It was yeah. really spectacular. I mean, it was just when gay people could get married during a very short period of time. I really, truly did not really want to get married. I didn't think it was necessary. But Orin wanted to get married. And so I said, okay, I'll get married under two conditions. You don't tell me how much money I can spend. And you really just let me create it myself. And he did. And it was simply spectacular. Because I knew all my life I wanted a wedding. But here it was happening. And I just, all my clients were, you know, they said, oh, my God, the boys are getting married. Well, when you hear Bernardo's going to do something, they know it's got to be spectacular. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't let them down. So I had to go to the moon, create this. And I did. And it was spectacular. And they never will see it again like that because the hotels, every time they see me, they say, we've never had a wedding like that. And I said, you probably never will. Nobody would be that stupid to spend that kind of money. You know, it's, it's all or nothing. It's, it's your day, right? It is amazing. I thought spending that much money on one day, like it sounds nuts, but it's the most important day. Other yeah. than the day your children are born. You know, that you're absolutely correct in that situation. And I was dying, but no one knew it but me. Oh, and so okay. I thought, what the hell? Go ahead and spend it and enjoy it and make it spectacular. Well, after I did that, then I had the transplant and then I lived. And then I came to the realization. And I was so glad that I went that extra yard and just created a spectacular event that we will never forget. Yeah. And I, I lived and, you know, made more money. <laughs> I find the most important thing, and I found that in writing my book, is uh, to just be honest about everything that you have to talk about. Um, as I was writing my book, uh, I revealed so much of my privacy of my life. But I felt that that's how you captivate an audience or a reader. Yes. It's to tell the truth and to be as open as possible. And so that's what I tried to achieve through my whole journey of writing. Vulnerability, I always felt, is the number one way to connect with people or at least initiate connection. And vulnerability, I, I feel, is a word that is misused. It's uh, tr translated into weakness, except that that's not what the word vulnerability means at all. Uh, means admitting basically that you're human. Yeah, it's admitting your mistakes and things that you really, I, as I say in my book, there's so much I revealed that I never thought I would let it out and discuss it. I thought I would carry those things to my grave, you know, just keep them to myself. And there were a few other things that I left out because. I just said, oh, maybe the next book. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. Yeah. So the I'm, I'm trying to think of the differences of this interview to other interviews, because you're not like our typical. Well, first of all, my interviews have often been with practitioners who also have illnesses. That's been like my niche because yeah. of my business. Uh, and then recently, I've been interviewing, if you want to call them influencers, in the chronic illness world uh since now it is becoming its own movement uh speaking up when you have a chronic illness which is wonderful i'm happy about that and there are a lot of people who are leaders influencers what you want to call them what i like is that you are in a direct um 
influencer or leader in that community, but you are someone who's been very influential, who has had a, a chronic illness and who has gone through this and, and didn't really share much about it until recently. I didn't share it at all until I wrote the book. Yeah. And so many of my friends really did not know the seriousness of everything until after I had the transplant. I kept it very quiet and very secretive. And uh, I'm glad I did. And then afterwards, it would all get out and people realized why I had built the monument because it was all this time. I had built the monument before my transplant because I knew it was inevitable I was going to die. And I wasn't going to have the transplant at that time. And so then after I built the monument, I went around to every cemetery in California and they had limitations as to what I could do. And I don't work with limitations. And so finally I found the cemetery that would allow me to create what I wanted to create. And so I built this 12 foot Greek and Roman architectural monument that was just breathtaking. And um, I said to Orrin, I said, this is so spectacular. Let's have a party to show it off. So we had a party of our closest, hundreds of our closest and dearest friends. Well, we had all kinds of press. We had press from England, press from Sweden, uh, New York, I mean, uh, France, all over. Six, six countries, I think. And they covered the whole uh, unveiling of this monument and a party of, it was like a celebration of life. And people knew I was kind of sick, but it wasn't discussed about. You can see I look different. And so after that, it hit the papers and hit the internet, went viral that this eccentric designer had this party of an unveiling of the monument at the cemetery and had a celebration of life before he got sick, after he, you know, before my death. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we had a movie made of our life about it, a documentary. Yeah. And so, but we hadn't, if I hadn't built the monument, none of this would have happened. So it's amazing how my mind mm -hmm. was so intense and I felt that I should do something. And of course, when I do something, I try to do the best that I can do. And I put a lot into it. And just from building that monument, the documentary was made. I finally decided to do the book. Uh, a lot came from that. And I thank God for giving me the creative mind to be able to do the things that I do. I don't know where the creations come from. Sometimes it amazes me, but I go with it. And when something comes into my head, I sit down and I write it down and I put it in, eventually I put it into real happening and make it happen. So um, I've been very blessed with the inner spirit that I have had most all of my life. And when I lost my mother at a very early age, we were so close that um, I always say, I think she's always around me as my guardian angel and protects me and gives me great advice. So I was very blessed to have an unbelievable mother. And I didn't realize it until I wrote this book that um, she was so influential in, in getting me prepared for what I had to deal with in my later life. I didn't know it as a child growing up. But as you read the book, you'll find out that she was very, very uh, difficult on making me do certain things and allowing me to do certain things and teaching me how to do things. I, I had a great mother, a wonderful mother. I, I pray every day and thank God for her.
because she really taught me how to be a, a better person and not to hurt other people because you don't want to be hurt. And it's better to give than to receive. I agree. And that really is such a blessing having, having a, a parent like that. I, I think I have two. I am particularly close with my mother too. I actually, I hate to say that um, I'm a very positive person, but sometimes I'm a morbid person. Maybe it's for preparation purposes. Well, um, maybe that's because of your illness. Maybe. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to die from fibromyalgia, but it's going to be a problem, you know, problem my whole life. Hopefully it doesn't get worse. Some. You have a very long life to live. You deal with what you have to deal with. Yeah. But yeah, the thought of losing my mother, when I, when I think about losing my mother, it's. It was the most devastating part of my life. Yeah. I didn't think that I would be able to make it. And that was one of the reasons I left Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, my mother died, I think I was 19. And I lived with my first partner for five years in Birmingham, Alabama. He was a television and radio disc jockey, and he had his own radio station and he had a TV show. And we lived a rich and famous life. I was very young. We traveled with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Bee Jays. It was Jim? Hmm? Is this Jim? Jim. Yeah. yeah, my first love was Jim Tabor. He was, uh, as I said, a he was originally from Dallas, Texas, and uh, I didn't know he was wealthy when I met him. And he was married to a woman. And the first night he met me, he said to me, you're the most beautiful man I've ever seen. I'm going to divorce my wife and marry you. I looked at him, I said, you must be crazy. He says, no, I'm not. And he was so strong and adamant about what he did and how he did things. And he was so used to always getting his way about doing everything. And he did. He, he truly swept me off my feet and uh, my mother died. And so when she passed away, he took over in her place. And he did everything in the world for me. And it was so, it was like I became so dependent on him. He was a star and he had all this world. And I was his major accomplishment to him. But I didn't have my accomplishment. I wasn't anybody. So that's when I, did, after five years, I thought to myself, Bernardo, you are—you don't have your achievement yet. You're—you're you're just in his limelight. And so I left him, and that was devastating for him. And I moved to California. With Thirteen pieces of unmatched luggage and my poodle. <laughs> and that's how the book became titled. Yeah. Uh, we had many, many titles, but that's the one that was most truthful and made a statement and i hope someday that can be a broadway play it would be a great broadway play name would that be that great with that title so that's my dream i may not be alive to see it but i hope it happens <laughs> but um so i you know i came out here with absolutely very very little but i always said and people ask me how did you do it how did you do this you're amazing, you're amazing. How did you accomplish all the things that you did? Well, visualization is the first thing. I visualized everything in my life, everything. Every car, every house, every possession, I visualized having it. And so when I left him and I came to California, that was an enormous, enormous step. Because um, he had all the money and I left everything. Just left, walked away. And I knew I could go back if I had to or wanted to. But I didn't want to go back. You don't go back. 
And after that first year, I decided this is it. So I struggled through it. And then, you know, I became a tough guy. I had to. Tough Sicilian man who knew what he wanted and got what he wanted and keeps what he wants. So it's been a real, I've learned through the whole journey of this. I've learned all the ways of meeting people, interesting people. And I was never jealous of other people. I thought that was a great, great. There were so many people that, you know, they are jealous of success. I'm always happy for other people to have, but I'm not jealous of their success. I think you can do your own. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's been a great asset in my business because I, I always try to be original in every concept that I put together. I never copied other designers. Many, many designers copy me. That's a compliment, but I did not copy other designers. I tried to be original in everything that I've ever done. And it's, it's given me that um, when people see my work, they know it's me. And they say, oh, that's Bernardo, that's Puccio. They know immediately that I did it. So that was a great accomplishment for me. 75 years old and coming to California, 23 years old. That's been a long, hard road. But I met some incredible people along the way who were really beneficial and gave me great support. And, and I loved every minute of it, and I hope there's more to come. Thank you, first of all. Uh, my pleasure. This has been great. I enjoyed it. I have a whole list of questions I thought you might answer, ask. And... Yeah. Oh, so I'm, uh, I mean, there are questions. What I want to do now is go over and I think create some specific questions, more specific questions around um, illness and care and, and relationships with well, maybe Oren as a caretaker and as well as your doctors. Um, maybe well, that's a very interesting comment because uh, having a caretaker, uh, you cannot have a transplant today or at my time without signing up, having someone sign up as your total caregiver. And uh, there has to be a backup because you're going to need care and you're going to need full-time attention. And they won't give you a transplant unless they know someone's going to be there with you. And also, things have changed since mine, the 10 years, nine and a half now. But um, I was 64 when I had my liver transplant. I don't know if they would give it to a 64-year-old man or a person at, at that age because they've changed a lot of the rules now. I think they would give it to a younger person. Oh, really? Yeah. Actually, my husband would know that. He, uh, he's a pediatric gastroenterologist. Hi. Oh, my friend, Dr. Graham Wolf is my gastroenterologist. He is one of my best friends as well, as I said. And so he, he would know, but I think they have changed the age line. Maybe it's still, but I don't think they'd give it to a 75-year-old person. Because they just don't give out organs like that that easily. And I had, as I say in the book, I had three livers to come in. The, I, I was given four days left to live uh, in, while I was in the hospital. And on the fourth day, a liver arrives. They prepped you for surgery. They took me in for surgery. 
and you wait for the liver to tell me if it's a fit because it has to be a perfect match. And that today it was not a match. It was not a match at all. So they take me back to my room. The second day, another liver comes in, prep you to go for a surgery, go into the hospital and you wait and you wait for the results. Not a, not a match again. And I have three, two days left to live. And I, the third day, uh, the third liver comes in and it was a perfect match. So that was really, really luck because I didn't have very long to go. I mean, that was calling it close, but it would have, you know, it was a total perfect match and thank God. And, you know, and the recovery was horrendous as you expect. And I did what I had to do, the pills, 60 pills a day, all the blood work and all the, you know, it was just a, an unbelievable ordeal. But what was the outcome of to live was worth it. I mean, to be able to live my life, a normal life, and I deal with the situations, the anti-rejection medication. I'm on very, very little now, like one and a half pill a day. So uh, I've done pretty well on this. And, but my purpose of my book is so important because it's for younger people, older or younger, doesn't matter and who were in such a terrible health situation as I was, and life and death situation, go ahead and go for the transplant or whatever they're telling you to do. Because what do you have to lose? If you die, you die. But I had the life to come back and enjoy my life. And I have been more productive on the second part of my life than I ever was. I don't think I could have ever done this without that transplant. It sounds almost selfish, but that made me a different person. It gave me a second time around. It gave me a second chance at life. And this time I didn't want to mess it up. So it's been a, a real a knowledgeable adventure for me. Made me a lot smarter, a lot more aware. And I learned from my doctors and I also learned from the medical people who are all around me who just, they, they look at me sometimes, they say, you're a miracle. I say, yeah, I know. So I believe in miracles. <laughs> I know I'm a miracle. Yeah, and here we are almost 10 years later, right? 10, 10 years in March. And people would never know that I ever, I don't think about that as being different. I said sometimes, I think that's what made me, I would never have been able to write a book. I would never have been able to make a movie. I would never have been able to do a lot of things. It gave me strength, an inner spirit that I did not have. Made me a lot better person. And with that situation, I could have never done it without Oren, who has been, as I said earlier, 43 years in my life. And that's, you know, a long, that's a lifetime. So uh, he is, He's, he's an incredibly smart, caring, loving human being. And so therefore, without that behind me, and I can say I want to build a wall to the moon or ladder to the moon, you say, okay, let me do, re do research. We'll figure out how to do it. And that's the kind of person he is. And so he's always been behind me in everything that I do. And that's a great help. I always say behind every person is another good person. Oh, that's so true. That really is. You can't do it alone. 
Everyone needs someone else. And people who think they can do it alone, they're crazy. Uh, you just need someone else to talk to, someone else to believe in, someone else to share it with. So it's just so very important to have that person. I don't care whether who he is or she. It's just to have that confidence and love in a supportive person. It was everything to me. And community as well. It, it doesn't, oh, I mean, it's great if it's a, a singular person, someone that you're close to, but I know that it's one of the reasons why there are hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, Facebook groups now for different illnesses or people with chronic illnesses in, in general because they haven't found great support systems at home or nearby, or even if they have, they might want something. I'm glad they're available for people because yeah. so many people lose their partners and, and they have grief counseling and people that need to talk to other people. I have my best friend, she just lost her husband and I want her to get into a group because it's very difficult after being married for 52 years and not and not having him here there. It's hard for her. And so I'm, I'm, I think she's getting into a group, but everyone needs someone there to talk to or lean on or help. So it's just, you can't do it all by yourself. As creative as I'd like to be, and strong as I think I am, I need help. Everyone needs, and we go to a therapist who's been grateful for help. She's a woman and she's been a psychologist to both of us. We don't go together because we get into arguments when we go together. So we go separate. And she was the real instigator in me writing the book. She had heard all of my stories through 10 or 12 years. And she said, Bernardo, you really should write these stories down and put them in a book. And as I say in the book, we're on a flight to Paris, 16 hour flight, and I couldn't sleep. And so I just started writing. And that's when it started. I just kept opening up and reading and writing. And it just, that's how the book began. And I'm so glad I wrote my book. Um, I am getting more accomplishment, satisfaction, I should say, than from the book than anything I've ever done. I walk people on the streets and they say, oh my God, I love that chapter on this and that and that. And I, who is the person that you want to talk about? And it's really just, it gave me another dimension because I don't think anyone who knew me would ever think I would write a book. They didn't know I had it in me. You're also ex expressing yourself, well, you're expressing yourself in a way that you've never done before, right? And not just through a medium you've never done before, but telling stories that you never have, especially so, so candidly. I, I'm not surprised that it feels it, more like you than anything else, because it is you on, on a different level. And I speak, the book sounds like I'm speaking. It, when I, you read the book, you'll now that you've had this interview, I, it's just like I talk. I, I, that's how I tried to write the book, just like I speak. And when I arrived to California, the most fascinating thing in the world, here I was just a young kid starting on California, no money and no ambition. I had ambition, but I didn't have a job. And creating, and the first person that I really meet is Lana Turner. 
and she, we became very close friends. Beautiful, beautiful movie star. I was never awed by people like that. They're just other people. And so we became best friends. And that was a great part of my life. Having this great movie star. And then we became good friends. And then years later, I became very good friends with Elizabeth Taylor. So I was very fortunate. Uh, I always say I was either at the right place at the right time or I had something that they were intrigued by. Because once I met these people, it was just inseparable. And well, were... there's a, there is being uh, in the right place at the right time, but you still make it happen, right? You might be put in the same room with someone, but you are the one. You have to, you yeah. have to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And you either have it or you don't. And it's just something that clicks. And you don't know it at the time, and uh, I didn't realize it so many, many years later, but um, it's just something that happens, the camaraderie between two people. And that's how it was with Elizabeth, and that's how it was with Lana, and so many celebrities that I met through all the years working with them. Uh, I always felt that they were incredible, talented people, but they were just another person who had a job in the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. So that never, and I was never overwhelmed by that. They did what they had to do to make a living and they were great at it. I did what I had to do and I was as good as I could be. I haven't met that many celebrities, but I've, I've met a decent number of other people. Yeah, that's, I've always felt that it's, I, I especially love when I'm, I'm five, seven, so I'm tall ish for a girl. And, uh, so, and I see these people who are larger than life and oh, no. women, but they're small. <laughs> I'll never forget meeting Joan Rivers. She was the tiniest thing I ever saw. She looked like a little bird, but she was a powerful woman. Right. Very right. powerful. I love it. I have to say, the when it came to celebrities or famous people that you've met, uh, the ones that stood out to me the most are the Beatles. I'm a big Beatles fan. But uh, I enjoyed meeting the Beatles. We ran around with them intensely. Uh, they we had an our own airplane at that time, and so they flew with us places. The Rolling Stones, the Bee Gees, mm -hmm. Chubby Checker, all of the rock and roll period of the '60s. When my partner was. He entertained them at their sock hops and their events. And I got to meet all of them. And they were lovely, lovely people. Well, the Beatles, of course, were from London, uh, like you. And it was a very great English group. They were incredibly successful. Unbelievably successful. They even signed a poster to us. Uh, I think when I broke up, I gave him all of that stuff. I, today, I wish I had the poster. It'd be worth a fortune. <laughs> yeah, not in the 13 pieces of luggage, I guess. No. <laughs> That's what I left with, 13 pieces of unmatched luggage and my poodle. Yeah, but you weren't happy about the unmatched luggage part. Someone said to me, Bernardo, recently after the book, they said, Bernardo, well, you've never had anything unmatched. I said, well, I had to grab 13 pieces from different people. I didn't have 13 pieces of luggage. So I borrowed from everyone I could borrow luggage from. So it was all unmatched. So that was the understatement of this title of the book, Unmatched. You don't have anything unmatched. Not anymore, I don't. 
Yeah, I had a feeling before I even read the book that that would be the case, just based on what your career was. Uh, and I said, there's a reason why Unmatched is part of the, that. Uh, it was, and I'm glad you noticed that. That was a major part, Unmatched. It was a little pretentious, 13 pieces of matched luggage. Oh my God. That's You're a designer. I think it makes sense. That yeah, is. I like the unmatched. <laughs> yeah. I had to work for it. And Gigi, I, I didn't, I had a labradoodle, but I'm all about the poodly dogs, all about the doodles. I miss mine too. I miss mine. He was Gigi for good guy. Um, there were the, WSGN was the radio station my partner worked for, and they had, uh, they were called the good guys, WSGN good guys, DJs. And so they had a contest and gave away dog poodles. And he arranged for me to win good guy. So I, but I couldn't call him good guy. I called him Gigi all the time. And I love just, that you won a poodle. Huh? <laughs> I love that you won a poodle. Yeah. He arranged for me to win one of the poodles. I think they gave away seven. And I, and that was the love of our life, that dog. He, he was truly spoiled rotten. Yeah. So then when I met Oren, he had two cats. I wasn't big on cats at all. I've always had a dog and we had dogs around the house. But um, so when I met him with two cats, I thought, oh my God, I don't really like cats. But I got to know them and love them. And then he lost those two. And then later when we began living together, we got our own Cristal. And he was, um, he's in the book. The whole chapter about it. Oh, oh yeah, I saw. I didn't read that chapter, but I white Persian. He yeah. was just spoiled beyond spoiled. But he he was known all over the world. Everybody, our Christmas card was his picture on the front of the card, all over. Everybody had their his face posted on their refrigerator. So he was very well known. But he was a beautiful cat. He lived for eighteen years. Wow, and that's <laughs> a long time for cats. Yeah. Anyway fascinating life and as I say and every time I autograph a book I hope you enjoy my books it's been a real ride and it's not over yet I still there's so much I want to do and and that's the kind of spirit everyone should have regardless of their age it's it's not even right. over it's this Someone is me the other day are you ever going to retire and I said I don't think so I said as long as I can see and scream I don't think I have to retire. You know, I do a lot of screaming. As long as I can see and scream. I love it. See and scream because two S's. I have to see and I scream a lot because if things aren't done right, they know. Redo it. Get it done correct. I, I tr strive to be a perfectionist. As close to it as possible. Because in this business, nothing's perfect. But you strive to make it as good as possible. And it's clearly gotten you very far. So. Yeah, because people know when you're spending the kind of money that they're going to be spending with me, um, they know that I am going to do the best and create the most finest product that they can enjoy in their lifestyle because they're going to live there, not me. So I design for my clients. I study everything about them, and that's why I can create an environment that they're going to love. And they'll say to me, how did you remember this? And how did you think of that? Oh, you mentioned it along the way. So 
as I always say, they're going to live there, not me. It's true. It's very true. Um, but so given that this podcast, again, it's, there's lots of ways you can take it, but the knowing that the audience are people with these illnesses, sometimes they are bedridden, sometimes they're like me, uh, sometimes they're invisible, maybe sometimes they're not. The, the idea of it being called invisible, not broken, doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have an invisible illness. It's rather that your experience is invisible, even if you have psoriasis or, or you're right. disabled. People don't have to know it. Yeah. I think everyone will love your story regardless of it having to do of like related to I hope so. Yeah. Believe yeah. me, people will be entertained by you. But it's always good to come with a message that you want to bestow upon the audience, something that makes them feel whether it be hopeful or inspired or um which I mean you would do so well. Uh and also that they can relate to in different ways. Well, I think the most important thing that anyone, he or she, must believe is in yourself. You have to have an inner spirit of yourself and love yourself because whatever illness you're having, if you have God inside you and believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything and you can overcome anything but I could never have done it without my faith in, in God and also believing in myself. It was an inner spirit that kept me going. And there were days that I didn't think I'd make it through it because I eventually was in a wheelchair and I was not able to function and walk. And I never had anyone to care for me, thank God. I was able to take care of myself. But uh, just believe in yourself and your inner spirit and your faith and have faith in something, whether you're Jewish or Catholic or Buddhist, or whatever you are, just believe in something other than just yourself and believe that you're going to make it. That was what I strive to tell people when I go to the Cedars and hospital and I talk to people who are sick because I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have anyone to believe in. So I was pretty much on my own. But when I talk to people who are so sick, you will be wet better, you will get well, and it's gonna be a hard road, but don't give up. And don't give up on your faith. Keep believing that you're going to do it. And there's nothing you can't accomplish if you really want it. I'm trying so hard to accomplish something with this book. And as we start in October, going across the country from New York to Florida to Palm Springs to San Francisco to California, all over. I want to give a message that you can you can overcome anything if you really believe in yourself. That's the purpose of my book. Thanks for listening to another episode of Invisible Not Broken. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit that subscribe button, tap those pretty purple stars to give us a rating and share with one spoony friend. Stay tuned for my upcoming episode where I bring back Dr. Boyana Weatherly for a follow-up episode, diving deeper into her expertise on self-care through mindfulness and meditation. It's chock full of easily digestible science and practices to take on. 
So if you're looking to kick off the holiday season with self-care before the resolutions, you definitely want to tune in to that upcoming episode. Also, an important reminder that Wellacopia is calling all chronic illness warriors like you, like us, to join the mission of humanizing healthcare. If having better communication and relationships with your care providers resonates with you, join this movement by signing up and then sharing Wellacopia with a loved one. Even better, a beloved practitioner. Until next time, guys, be kind, be gentle, be badass.